Open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. What a glorious thing it is to bask in the goodness of a Father who loves us and embraces us and has invited us into his family this morning. Isn't that just wonderful? Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that song this morning. Many of you know that our 18-year-old son Ezra shipped off to boot camp last Sunday. You probably had to guess that it would be impossible for me not to mention that this Sunday. If everything has gone according to schedule, and we don't know if it has because we don't get to talk to him for 13 weeks. Yeah, thank you for feeling my pain. So if everything has gone according to schedule, just on Friday, he met the man whose sole purpose in life over the next seven weeks is to completely tear his life apart down to the barest of foundations, a man known as a drill instructor. When Susan and I went through the family briefing, Staff Sergeant Woolard described this process as absolutely necessary in Ezra's life as a Marine because it's only in completely breaking him down, leaving only the good foundation of honesty, integrity, and moral excellence that we've tried to lay. I was glad that he said that there would be a little bit left. But it's only in breaking him down to the barest of foundations can Ezra be built up again along with all of the other Marines in his platoon and his battalion there in San Diego, to graduate them 13 weeks later as the efficient, mighty, deadly fighting force that they are known to be, the few, the proud, the Marines. It struck me this week that there is a lesson for the church here. It seems reasonable that we need to keep going through a similar process of breaking down and rebuilding ourselves as disciples of Jesus. And I think that's because as we move through this life as Christians, we're kind of like whales moving through the ocean, taking on barnacles. There's, there's all this stuff that starts to accumulate on us in our individual Christian walks and on us as the gathered people, the church, that aren't the most important things to Jesus and to his Father. They're not, they're not the priorities for what he has for us and for his church. We can, we can actually drift from what's important in our life. And in the same way that that drill instructor tears down my son and those recruits with him, we need kind of a spiritual drill instructor instructor to, to regularly come in and bring us back to the Bible to keep recentering us and refocusing us on Jesus so that we don't lose sight of him, that we make sure our lives and our priorities are in line with him and his priorities to make sure that we keep taking one step closer to Jesus, following Jesus, walking in his ways by his power. And so as we stand here at the beginning of summer, entering into summer, that's what I want to do. I want to encourage us to use this summer to move one step closer to Jesus. And I want you to consider this sermon just a part of kind of this ongoing, never-ending, a church where anyone can grow sermon series that's going to happen for like the next 
30 years. All right? The good news plus safety plus time. This is just another installment in that sermon series. And our drill instructor this morning, and he's a really nice drill instructor. He's not going to cuss at you, nor am I. (laughs) He's actually going to encourage us. And that drill instructor's name is Peter, a man who was a servant and apostle. And, you know, he was just a really good friend of Jesus. And he gave a little sermon at the beginning of this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. I I really do think, he he sat down to write a letter and then he broke out into preaching. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at verses 1 to 15 as a pathway to making it one step closer to Jesus. And and here's what we're going to see. Okay, here's where we're going. Verses 1 to do, Peter wants us to be with Jesus. 3 to 4, to become like Jesus. 5 to 11, to do what Jesus did. To be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Let's ask for his help. Father, we say as a people this morning that we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in your power operating within us and among us this morning. So do abundantly more than we could ask or think according to that power that is at work within us for the glory of Jesus through this church. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus, the Messiah. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith that we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus, our master. Peter immediately gets our attention on Jesus. He he mentions his name three times in these two sentences. And he does it in the same breath that he introduces himself. He states that he is a slave, which I think expresses his humility, and that he is an apostle, which expresses his authority, But the emphasis of those two things is really on Jesus and in relationship to Jesus because for Peter, that's what this is all about and who it's all about. And I love how he levels the playing field between us and him because Peter, maybe Peter could think, you know, I've seen the incarnated Jesus. I've spent three and a half years with Jesus. I'm an apostle of Jesus. But instead of acting like he's above us, he says we're the same My faith isn't any more special or unique or different or powerful than your faith is. We share the same precious faith. And what is this faith? This faith, I I think when Peter uses that word, he uses it as a noun, the faith. I think it is the doctrines and the teachings and the facts and the details of who Jesus is and what God has done through Jesus to redeem and save the world. For Peter, the faith is shorthand for the good news. It's all imported in that little word. And it is not a faith, notice what Peter says, it's not a faith that he grabbed hold of himself or that we grab hold of ourselves. It is a faith that has been given to us. This is an important concept for Peter. He's going to say it five times in this passage. That it's been given, that we've received it, 
that it was God that initiated an action towards us in Jesus. He gave us the good news, setting it in our hearts that he himself had made alive to be able to even receive this faith. So that Peter can now pray for those disciples in Asia Minor and for us this morning for a re-centering and refocusing and remembering that this is what it is all about. Look at it there. It is about the knowledge of God and Jesus, our master. Peter wants us to grow in our knowledge of God and Jesus. And there's more, for Peter wants us to see that benefits flow from that knowledge. Namely, if we want God to give us more grace, more favor, more benefit, if we want God to give us more peace, more wholeness, more shalom, more fullness and rest and fulfillment, if we want all of that, more grace and more peace, anybody want more grace and more peace in your life? Then what we need is more knowledge of Jesus. Mark that. The first step And getting one step closer to Jesus is you need to know more. But that knowledge, note this also very quickly, is not disconnected theological and intellectual pursuit. What Peter is on about, because think about this. Think about, don't forget who Peter is. These aren't just These aren't just kind of lofty theological pursuits for Peter. This isn't disconnected. Peter knew Jesus. He had experienced Jesus. He had that kind of knowledge of Jesus so that when I think, when Peter says, grow in a knowledge of Jesus, that's what he's on about. He wants you to know someone, to know this Jesus for who he truly is. It's facts and truths and descriptions and characteristics and doctrines that inform us about Jesus. It's plunging our minds into the riches of the Gospels to see Jesus walking there and to learn of him. It's plunging our minds into all of the letters that are about Jesus. It's plunging our minds into the revelation that is given of Jesus so that we know him for who he truly is. And when we, are do, when we do that, When we are with Jesus in that way, in this book, in community, then we are in a position to receive multiplied grace and favor and peace and wholeness and fullness and fulfillment and joy. Wow, that's pretty cool. But there's more. A next step in addition to being with Jesus, that actually helps with the first step. Let's look at it. Verse three. By his divine power, God has given us everything that we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. And these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Whoa! (laughs) Okay, that's a lot. There's a lot there. And it's amazing and breathtaking and stunning and hope-producing. 
if you will let it sink in. So let's break it down. Let me break it down for you a little bit, what we just read in verses three and four. Peter is opened in verses one and two by telling us that God had given us, he's granted to us to have and understand the faith, a faith that is centered on Jesus, that should grow in a knowledge of Jesus as we are with Jesus. Here, Peter tells us that God is granting us something else, namely that we have become like Jesus, past tense. God has done that and will continue to do that. How have we become like Jesus? Peter Davids says it this way. The knowledge of Jesus, coming to understand and acknowledge his significance, which was the basis of our receiving the same precious faith as Peter's faith, that knowledge is now the means by which God by his divine power, gives us all that we need for a godly life. Okay, did you just hear that? He gives us all that has given us all that we need for a godly life. Did you walk in this morning realizing that you have everything you need to live a godly life? (laughs) He's done that. Isn't that encouraging? And it's not by your power. Oh my gosh, I have spent so much of my life living, thinking. It's my, it's my power that's going to get this done. It's my power that's going to live this life the way that God wants me to live it. That's not what Peter says here. It's that God has granted by his power everything I need to live the life he wants me to live. Do you think that God's power is a power that you can trust to produce things? I do. If it raised Jesus from the dead working in my life, it can work out to produce in me a godly life. And it all comes to me by this Jesus, knowing this Jesus who has called me, Peter says, verse three, to himself. He has called me to himself. Again, it's about him Jesus is the one who is initiating. Jesus is moving. Jesus is getting hold of us. Jesus is declaring a call that with open eyes we cannot refuse. And he did this by the means of his glory and his excellence. Why would Peter say that? He calls you by his glory and excellence. Peter's going to go on in verse 16 of chapter 1 to describe the moment where he was standing there at the transfiguration of Jesus when his earthly veil that was his flesh was pulled aside for a moment and Jesus was shining bright as white as lightning and Peter got to see him for who he truly is. That's why he says he calls you by his glory, the power of his glory. And Jesus had walked in front of Peter. Peter had walked with Jesus, had seen him teach and preach and lead, had seen him meet with needy, needy person after needy person after needy person in village after village, showing compassion and care and grace and mercy and kindness and love and generosity and humor. Peter had seen the excellence of Jesus and had been so attracted to that as a disciple and a follower. 
So of course he says, it is by his glory and by his excellence that he calls you. And God in his mercy and by his power has given us that same sight, I believe. When we look into these scriptures and we read of this Jesus, the Holy Spirit allows our eyes to see his glory and his excellence so that we have all we need. Right now, by God's power, in Jesus. And because of his glory and excellence, he just keeps stacking it up, doesn't he? He has given us promises. I'm not sure exactly what Peter means when he says he's given us these promises. I don't know which promises he's thinking of in his mind when he writes this, but I, I think that's actually not the most important thing to look at here and be concerned with. I think Peter wants us to see the benefits of those promises, the results of those promises. Namely, these promises coming from his glory and excellence with his glory and excellence enable us to share Jesus's divine nature. Wow. I know I'm saying that word a little bit today, but wow. Let that sink in. Being with Jesus, knowing Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus means that you share his divine nature. One of the questions I had this week was, how? How do I share the divine nature of Jesus? I think that maybe one of the promises Peter could have had in mind that Jesus made to his disciples is that we would have the Holy Spirit. He was there at Pentecost, had seen the Spirit fall. And because the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ, brings us from death to life and fills us, the Spirit of Christ, we therefore share in the divine nature, right now by God's power. And, and I don't know about you, but I need that reminder this morning. <laughs> I need that refocusing this morning. I need to remember that I share in the divine nature and the divine power of God in the spirit of Christ. Because I am tempted to think when I have difficulties in my life or when I have difficulties as a pastor, in this church or when we have difficulties as a church, when we have troubles that rise up among us or against us, we tend to come to a wrong conclusion about what the problem really may be. In one of my favorite essays by Francis Schaeffer, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way, I, I have it on my iPad, I read it almost once a month. He writes this, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism or Roman Catholicism or rationalism or humanism, and I could add, or postmodernism or materialistic consumerism or the rampant sexualizing of everything or whatever, whatever the problem may be. Schaefer says, all of these are dangerous, but they are not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh 
rather than the power of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Do you see? Oh, this is so good for us, family. If we will, if we will draw one step closer to Jesus every day, if we will get in the Word and spend time with Jesus, getting a knowledge of Jesus by the power of the Spirit and reminding ourselves and remembering the divine power of God at work in us, we will be reminded that we share the divine nature of Christ and that we have everything that we need to do what God wants us to do. Everything. I looked that word up in the Greek and you know what it means? Everything. We have all we need. And in that way, we will escape, Peter says, the world's corruption that is caused by human drives instead of divine nature kinds of drives and behaviors. Which is what Peter wants to show us next. He wants us to understand what the divine nature is all about. Namely, it's about Jesus. It's about doing what Jesus did. Verse five. In view of all this, What's the this? Verses one to four. In view of everything that I've just said to you, now make every effort to respond to God's promises. Okay, so let's be honest. Christianity demands obedience. It does. Mark that I said it, please. It demands obedience. But notice where that obedience flows from. It is a response to God's promises. That's what we've learned. That's what Peter's trying to teach us in verses 1 to 4. We've been given a faith that opens a way for a knowledge of the beauty and the excellence and the awesomeness of Jesus that brings favor and well-being into our lives. The more we grow in knowledge and spend time with him, and all of that makes way for the power of God to flow into us in such a way that we share his divine nature and can escape the world's corruption that comes from fallen drives and desire and instead live a godly life because he's given us all we need to do in that godly life, and knowing all of that, from that bursts obedience. In obedient living, in virtuous living, because we have everything we need to do that. In understanding that, how would we not want to do that? Are you tracking with me? Having the divine nature of God means that we want to do what Jesus did. We're wired for it, Peter says, and more importantly, we are already empowered for it. Listen carefully to me. This is really important to live a joyful Christian life. The beauty and joy of the obedience that I think Peter is describing here, the beauty and joy of it is that it does not flow out of a view of how bad you are. You know, shame on you. Shame on you for being a bad person. Shame on you for failing. And so now I'm going to obey because I got to be better, right? I got to be better. 
It doesn't, Peter's not arguing that. He's arguing that the beauty and the joy of the obedience he's describing flows out of how beautiful Jesus is and how you want to be more like him as you know more of him and that you know that you already have the power to do that. Do you see the difference? Do you see how important the difference is to doing what Jesus did? Now, what did Jesus do? How did he live? Peter saw it, and I, I believe what Peter is describing in verses, the latter half of verse five to verse seven now is, I, I think it's coming out of, he saw these things in Jesus and now is describing that they should be in our lives too because we share his divine nature. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. What you see here are virtues, qualities, and characteristics that I think honestly, are probably less important about you doing them kind of for yourself and who you are and more important for what they mean for those around you and how they bless those around you. And I think they're pretty straightforward. I'm, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time going one by one by one over these, except for one, the last one. I, I don't think there's probably any importance to the, the order that he's listing, except mainly that he ends with love, which seems to be such an important virtue throughout the New Testament. And I want you to, I want to draw your attention to it because it's important to remember that it is a virtue primarily more so than it is an emotion as Christians. I think that'd be a good reminder for us here. You see, you are not encouraged in the Bible when it talks about love to feel warmly about each other or even necessarily like each other. You're called to love each other. You're told to make every effort to act lovingly towards each other. It's why when I do premarital counseling and the couple comes in and, you know, they've talked about, you know, they've proclaimed their love. Or you do marriage counseling and they talk about, I, I usually don't ask, you know, so are you guys, you love each other right now? I usually say, are you in like with each other right now? Because I assume that you're going to love each other. My hope is that you can like each other. That's what the Bible does. It assumes you will act lovingly towards each other. It's less about how you feel and more about how you act and what you do. Love one another. Make every effort to study the other of those so that they work out in your lives. Verse eight, and the more you grow like this, the more you grow like, what's the this? Okay, it's the list in verses five to seven. The more you grow like that, doing what Jesus did, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the two kinds of growth that Peter is talking about here. Note that he first said, grow in a knowledge of Jesus, and now he's saying, grow in virtues to look like Jesus and do what he did. And the more that you do that, the more you grow like this in these ethics, if you will, the more productive and fruitful you will be in the knowledge that you have about Jesus. 
What's going on there? Do you understand what Peter is saying? I, here's what I think Peter's on about and I think is absolutely brilliant. He wants us to walk in these virtues and these qualities because as I actually live out a life that's accordance with living like Jesus did, I will understand more of who Jesus is and then that acting will make my knowledge of facts more productive and useful in my life as I try to live out like Jesus and round and round it goes. Do you see? It's kind of like when someone says, you should walk a mile in my shoes. What do they mean by that? If you did that, you'd know more about who I am. And so Peter is saying, the more that you grow in looking like Jesus, the more that you're actually going to understand who Jesus is. And that's really awesome. Now, it would be totally reasonable for Peter, I think, at this point, after verse 8, I would have totally expected him to say what he does in verse 10. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove. You know, so I've given you what you need. Now, work hard at all of that. But he doesn't go there yet. Instead, he gives us verse 9, which I think is a warning because I think he knows there's a potential obstacle to all of this. Verse 9. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind. Okay, so that, that kind of makes sense. To, to fail to do all these wonderful things he's encouraged us to do, to, to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. If I didn't do that, that would be short-sighted and blind as a follower. That makes sense. But then look what he says. Those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Now, I thought about that for a long time because it didn't immediately make sense to me. And as I thought about it, it seemed to me that maybe what Peter is saying, those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind because they forget that they have been cleansed from their old sins. I still wasn't fully sure what Peter, like why does he say that here? What does it mean? And I was pondering it the other day, preparing for this sermon and working hard at this little verse because it felt like Peter was saying something really important. It felt like he was trying to help me understand something really important about my humanity. That there's something that can get in the way of the joy of being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And so I really wanted to understand what Peter was saying. And something happened to me this last week that made me think that maybe what Peter is putting his finger on here is a very powerful human emotion called regret. Regret is a feeling of sadness or disappointment over something that we've done or even worse, I think even more powerful, something that we didn't do, but we should have done. Do you know this feeling? I do. I felt it keenly on Sunday when I dropped my son off at boot camp. 
Isn't it amazing how you know that something is coming and you can, you can know that for like a while and you can try and be intentional about that thing coming and at the same, t- and like, it's, like it's a, kind of a long time coming and at the same time it can sneak up on you? That's how it felt when we left Ezra at the recruiting station last Sunday. I got back in the car and I, was, I looked at Susan and said, how did this happen already? How did 18 years go by? I had all this time, right? I had all this time. And it just felt like, and it's just done. Like we're driving away and that's that. And he's out of the house and it's just over. And I thought it was really going to wreck her. And it's just absolutely wrecked me. I have just been, just been an emotional wreck this week. The first two nights, I tossed and turned all night long. And you know why? Because of parental regrets. Like, did I use all the time? Like I should have. Did I spend too much time thinking about my vocation? Was I as interested enough in what he was interested in? Did I tell him I loved him enough times? Does he know? Have I trained him up in the way he should go so that now he's not going to depart from it? There are all those things that he asked me to do and I, and I didn't. I could see so many of my parental failings. And of course, I mean, like, right, of course I have parental failings. I'm an imperfect man. Of course there are parental failings with my boy. I learned this week again that regret is an incredibly powerful emotion and it can be paralyzing and it has close cousins named guilt and shame. And regret and guilt and shame can spring up from our past all our sins of action and inaction, all of our failures, and these feelings can die really hard for humans, right? And if we're not careful, they risk becoming our identity. I did something ugly becomes I am ugly. I made a big mistake becomes I am a big mistake. I failed becomes I am a failure. And isn't this what Peter himself may have been thinking of? The man who after all that time with Jesus, three plus years of being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did, betrayed Jesus and failed Jesus and abandoned Jesus. And in Luke's story we read read that he looked in Jesus' eyes and when that rooster crowed, he ran out and wept. And do you, do you think that maybe he was filled with regret in that moment? And then over a little, a little, like a month later, after the cross and the resurrection, oh man, Jesus won't let Peter isolate himself. Jesus won't let Peter be in the darkness of his regret. Jesus confronts Peter in the midst of all his regret over that failure and three times you think that's accidental three times asks Peter 
if he loves him to match those three denials and restores Peter. (laughs) Saves Peter. And Peter, thus emboldened, heads up a church that spreads like wildfire across the Roman Empire. Because Peter had made every effort to respond to God's promises. Peter believed again that he had been given everything that he needed, the divine power of God, sharing the divine nature of Jesus. And now at the end of his life, saying what are probably some of his last words as he writes this, he looks back on a host of old sins and he wants us freed in the same way way. He doesn't want us thinking that our sins should get in the way of anything of what he has just said and all the promises that are ours to be able to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and to do what Jesus did. You are free from your old sins, family. You are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We can admit our failures and admit our sins and bring our regrets and lay them at the foot of his cross. We can be transparent about our unfinished selves. Did you hear that? All you OCDers and anal retentive types, you are unfinished. And you won't be finished until he comes back. And yet you have everything you need. So don't throw in the towel. (laughs) Do not give up. Do not surrender. You know what Peter's doing? He is reminding you that God doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you. Okay, right now, he loves the you of June 19th at 9.59 a.m. 2022. Now, he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. And he's going to get up in your business. And he's going to reveal things to you. But he loves you right now the way that you are. So, brothers and sisters, verse 10. Work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Work hard because you've been given everything you need. Do these things, all of it, that he said from verse 1 to 9. And you will never fall away. And God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, you've got a journey ahead of you. And Peter's saying, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did, and you're not going to stumble, and you're going to make it into the kingdom of Jesus. He's going to write later in this letter that it's about a new heavens and a new earth. That's one of, the, one of God's promises for you. A new heavens and a new earth where you'll live with Jesus forever because you share in his divine nature. You know, I also have many regrets as a pastor. Worship team, would you come up? A big one is 
I spent a lot of years thinking that what was really important was how big my church was. Um, how many people were coming, what our budget was, what our platform was, what our influence was. I didn't want to admit that. I, I didn't think that that was true of me, but it was. Had a little blog, how many people are reading it. Read lots of books about ministry and structures and how to be successful. And, and it's not that I'm saying that I don't want a lot of people to come to a gathering so they can know Jesus. I want that. I want the kingdom of God to expand. But I regret that sometimes all those other things really got in the way of Jesus and marginalized Jesus being at the center. When I came to grace, I told you, so you knew when you voted, (laughs) I didn't have some big, like, huge massive vision structures and here we go and we're going to take over the world. I, I just wanted to come and be a church where people could grow. They could receive wave upon wave of the good news where they could experience an environment of safety where they could unburden their souls where no one who would come in this place would ever have anything to fear where people would experience God as patient because it takes time for complicated people to rework their lives at a really deep level. That I wanted us together to move one step closer to Jesus. And so that's what I aim to do for the next 25 or 30 years is to try and make Christianity here at Grace Church as idiot-proof as possible. There's a slogan. (laughs) New mission statement. Christianity, idiot proof. (laughs) I want us to keep focused on these simple things. And so, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth that you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you As long as I live, grace, church. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' name.